reading today from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, as we take these next few moments and we have your word open before us, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, as the psalmist said, that we might receive wonderful truths from your word. And God, I pray most of all, Lord, that you would be glorified and lifted up among each and every one of us this morning. And as I pray so often, God, I pray that what we have not would you give us, what we know not would you teach us, and what we are not would you make us. For the glory of your name, through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. share God's Word with you. I always counted a, a privilege to open the Bible and share from God's Word. My task today is to preach God's Word. There is a difference between teaching and preaching. You can teach without preaching, but you can't preach without teaching. Teaching means to inform, so I hope to inform you, but preaching means to move. So wherever you're at today, I hope to move you where you're at with the Lord to be closer to Him today. Thank you, Dana, for leading us in worship this morning. I did not know what he was going to sing, but it fits well with the message. God is with us in the fire, amen? Uh, he is the God of hosts. He walks through us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we can fear no evil. And so uh, God's going to talk to a church today about losing the presence of the Lord, and that's a horrific thought, as it were. And so thank you, Jeremy, for allowing me this opportunity. Well, good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. The blood flowed like a river on that day in Aphek. 34,000 Israelites lost their lives at the hands of the Philistines. Among those 34,000 were the two evil sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. There they died in the battle. On top of all of that, and maybe even most importantly of all, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. The very thing that represented the presence of God in the life of God's people. 
Well, that bad news traveled swiftly to Eli, who had been waiting on a dusty road at Shiloh, sitting in a chair. And when he received the news that the massacre had taken place and his two sons had lost their lives, he took that. But when he heard the story about the capture of the ark, the 98-year-old Eli flipped over backwards on his chair, broke his neck, and died. If that were not enough, the story further tells us that his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was in labor with child. She heard the news that now she was a widow, that her brother-in-law had died, that her father-in-law had died, that 34,000 of her fellow countrymen had lost their lives, but most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the pagan Philistines. And it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 4:21, a picture of a living corpse. She gives birth to a son, and in giving birth to that son, she loses her life, but with her dying breath, this is what is recorded. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. How sad. How sad for a people of God to lose God's presence. Dead, living, yet lifeless. The pastor has shared with y'all over the last several weeks that these are seven real churches in real time that really existed. And so today we're going to be dealing with that fifth church. So far you have seen that faithful disciples keep Christ in the center Faithful disciples will live for Christ now and with Christ forever. Faithful disciples stand firmly in the faith and against false teaching. And faithful disciples aim for a pure church and anticipate a glorious eternity. Now the one thing about the, the, uh, the book of Revelation is that it is Jesus' book. Uh, the whole book begins by saying in Revelation chapter 1 that this in fact is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that little preposition thereof can be translated several ways. Some of the ways that it can be translated it can be translated from Jesus Christ. It can also be translated about Jesus Christ. And it can also be translated it belongs to Jesus Christ. So this book, the book of Revelation, he is the source of this book. He is the subject of this book, and he is the owner of this book. This book is all about him and the revelation of him. That being said, well, who is Jesus? Who is he? I am trusting, I'm going to make a great assumption today, that most in this room are believers that you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. He's your Savior. He's your Master. He's your Lord. But may I remind you, as we're dealing with seven real churches, He is also all of those things to the church. He is also all of those things to Eastwood Baptist Church. He is your Master. He is your Lord, he is your Savior. I get amused sometimes uh, 
amazed even when I hear people talk about how they're going to do things in church and maybe even how they're going to organize church or how they're going to set things up in church or how we're going to do things in church. And then they plan and they do all of these things and then it's as if Jesus is some kind of appendage on their plans. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that in the end, really doesn't matter what we think. Doesn't really matter what our opinion is. Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might, have, might come to have preeminence or first place in everything. I have heard sermons that uh, tell about the last words of Jesus on the cross. And those are appropriate. You may even hear a series on that. I have heard sermons on the Great Commission, uh, emphasizing the fact that these are Jesus' last words to us, and so we should pay heed because this is his departing volley to us. Well, in fact, these are the last words of Jesus. These here in chapter 2 and 3 and chapter 22 are the last words of Jesus, the last particular words of Jesus that are recorded for us in the Bible. So today, I want to talk to you, kind of sounds like an oxymoron, I want to talk to you about the dead church, the dead church. And so Jesus Christ, because he possesses this book, he owns this book, this book is about him, he is inspiring the ancient apostle John to pen a word of warning, a word of judgment, and a word of honor. It's a warning and a judgment to the dead and the dying, and it's a commendation to the faithful. So, as we think about this, Pastor Jeremy has uh, preached four churches so far, and he has emphasized what faithful disciples do. What I want to do in this one is to point out what a faithful disciple is. And so I want to give you this thought as we begin this passage. And that is simply this. Faithful disciples are overcomers. Faithful disciples are overcomers. And I want to give you four you may say, well, what is an overcomer? Well, let me give you four significant signs that I find in this text that will give us insight into what an overcomer is. So the first one is found there in the first verse. Let's read that again. Thinking about this thought, the overcomer affirms the knowledge of Jesus entirely. The, the overcomer affirms the knowledge of Jesus entirely. He begins, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has or holds. I tried to write this in my uh, computer and spell check kept correcting me. 
And it kept saying, write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who held. And I'm like, that's not right. You're trying to correct me, but that's, that's not right. He hasn't held the churches. He's still holding them. And so write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has or holds the seven spirits of God. These aren't seven unique, distinct spirits. Seven is the number of completion. So he's talking about the fullness of the spirit. The seven spirits of God are, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God, the complete God, the complete essence of God. He's holding that, and he's also holding the seven stars or the seven pastors. And he makes this profound statement. I know your works. You have a reputation. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. See, the overcomer affirms the knowledge of Jesus entirely. And they just have to come to the understanding that, well, Jesus knows everything. He is absolute. It's okay, by the way, to say amen. He is absolutely omniscient. Nobody else may know what you're thinking, but Jesus does. Nobody else may know where you're at with the Lord, but Jesus does. He is totally omniscient. He knows everything about you. He knows the past totally. He knows the present totally. And amazingly enough, he knows the future totally. We are given a, a, a multitude of choices to make, and you'll make choices today. You'll come to a fork in the road, and it's not like Yogi Bear that says, you know, you come to a fork in the road, pick it up. No, you're going to have an A and a B and a C, and you may choose A. Well, God knew you would choose A, and he knows everything that's part of A. But he also knows what would have happened if you had chosen B, and he also knows what would have happened if you chose C. Because God knows everything. And the overcomer is going to submit to the omniscience of God. Now this church here, they're not facing persecution. They're not facing temptation. They're not facing false teaching. What they're facing is, well, they're dead. That's their problem. They are dead. If they were like the faithful few of verse 4, if you look there, Jesus would send the Holy Spirit, that sevenfold Spirit of God. He would send him to both encourage and to quicken what remains. But Jesus here has made a terminal diagnosis. Just like Ichabod of old, who was a picture of a living corpse. Can you just imagine a church being a picture of a living corpse? A body. Perhaps that is you as an individual today. See, their reputation is removed from reality because at the end of that verse, he says, you have a reputation or a name for being alive. And here's this conjunction. But 
You are dead. You are dead. So it doesn't matter what I think about my spiritual condition. It doesn't matter what your annual church profile may say. It doesn't matter what the Kentucky State Convention says. It doesn't matter what your association may say. It doesn't matter for me what the Southern Baptist of Texas may say about me. In the end, the only voice that matters is Jesus. Because he's the one that has the full knowledge about where I really am. He says, you have a reputation or a name for being alive, but you are dead. So that begs the question, how in this sense could a church die? Well, it could be through false teaching, as one of the churches uh, designates. It could be through persecution. It could be through a lot of things. But here, I think it's obvious that the thing that brought death to the church was that they lived off their past fame. They lived off their past fame. My first Super Bowl memory was 1969. I was 10 years old, and I remember Joe Willie Namath, Broadway Joe, shaking his finger as he won that last playoff game before the Super Bowl, and they asked him, is it possible for y'all to beat the Baltimore Colts, they are invincible. And what he said was, I guarantee it. They won 16 to 7. I couldn't believe it. Man, to watch him on the field, that was something of beauty. I remember 69 Broadway Joe Namath, but I also remember 1977. Joe Namath, that played for the Los Angeles Rams. He could barely stand up. His knees were put together with duct tape and screws. He had to get shots before every game. How sad to see a once great, vibrant athlete living on his name. But his name was not getting him very far. His last game before he was benched, the Chicago Bears nearly beat him into the ground. He was living on his past reputation. True loyalty and real service for you is that right now, or is that just a thing of the past? See, their notoriety, as far as Jesus is concerned, is just a bunch of nonsense. It does not match reality. They have duped themselves. They have duped everybody else, but they have not duped Jesus because he knows everything. When we first moved to Dayton, one of the things that amazed me uh, we, we didn't have a town square, but if you had a town square, there were several churches that were located there. And one of those churches, uh, 
Oddly enough, it had a beautiful building, had beautiful trees, had the parsonage next door, uh, just a beautiful thing to look at. I, I don't know who was thinking, or, or they probably weren't thinking, when they made the sign for the church, what they did, they went to the funeral home and got a grave marker and put the name of the church on the grave marker and set it out in front of the church. And I thought, well, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And the more I got to know that church and the more I visited with them and the preacher, I came to understand that, wow, that was appropriate. Because that church, in fact, was dead. That preacher, in fact, was dead. Are you living on your name and your reputation from the past? Jesus might want to say today, well, what have you done for me lately? Secondly, the overcomer continues in obedience to Jesus completely. The overcomer continues in obedience to Jesus completely. Look there at verse 2 and 3. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now I like it when I don't have to figure out application when Jesus does it for me. There's five imperatives in this what I just read. He tells us exactly what to do. Let me give them to you. Be alert, strengthen, remember, keep it, and repent. That's the five commands, that's the five directives that Jesus is telling us to do this morning. It's literally this. Be alert and stay on the alert. Strengthen and keep strengthening. Remember and keep remembering. Keep it and keep on keeping it. But the last one is a little different because it is repent. But repent completely. Repent completely. See, what Jesus is calling for is a total reversal of our attitudes and actions. What he says is we are not enough. What we have done is insufficient. It is not full. It is incomplete. Those of you that are parents will appreciate this. When you ask your child to do something and they kind of do it and then they come back and say, well, I did it, but you know better, it's half done. May I remind us all this morning that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience see the sad thing about this church they can't really point the finger at a pagan culture they can't really point the finger at a false teacher or somebody persecuting them they are dead and the mortal wound that has been inflicted is self-inflicted they have brought it upon themselves 
There in verse 3, he says, keep it. That emphasizes the seriousness of this. And then he tells us in closing there, repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. You were going this way, but then you changed your mind, and then you began to going this other way. That's what repentance is. One of these days, I'm not sure if he has yet, but I'm sure that Jeremy is going to tell you about a gentleman that he met in college. Fascinating individual. I would consider him probably the last living Puritan on this planet. His name is Richard Owen Roberts. He wrote a book on repentance. Fascinating book. Here's what he says in that book. The first word of the gospel is not love. It is not even grace. The first word of the gospel is repent. And he does a fascinating study in that book looking at the preaching of Jesus. You know what the first message of Jesus was? The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. You know what the apostles' first message was? Repent and believe. You know what John the Baptist's message was? Repent and believe. Kind of get the message here. Five out of these seven churches, you know what Jesus tells them to do? Repent. Now sometimes we think we repent and we say things like this. Well, Lord, you know, if I've done this, that's partial obedience. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It is being open and honest with God. The overcomer continues in obedience to Jesus completely. Third, the overcomer accepts the judgment from Jesus inevitably. He closes verse 3 by saying, if you are not alert. Now that's a big two-letter word there, if. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Now typically for believers, we usually think of the coming of Jesus, either the first or the second. We, we think of it in terms of endearment it's a glorious thing that jesus came at the incarnation right and it's a glorious thing that he's coming again but here uh, not so much and he talks about a group of people being surprised at the judgment that he's going to bring henry wadsworth longfellow said this though the mills of god grind slowly yet they grind exceeding small Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Each of us will stand before God. That is assured. Each of us will give an account for what we have done in this body as a believer. For the lost, you will stand and give an account for your sin. For the believer, we will not have to give an account for our sin because Jesus gave account for our sin. 
And there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But we will give an account for what we have done in this body. Paul said it this way in Acts 17.31. Because God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. God has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The overcomer is not only going to acknowledge the fact that Jesus knows everything. The overcomer is also going to obey Jesus in everything. And the overcomer is going to recognize the fact that he or she will have to stand before God one day and give an account. Fourth, the overcomer embraces the worth of Jesus fully. Look at verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they walk with me in white because they are worthy. They're walking with the Lord, and they're clothed in white because, well, Jesus has saved them. They are a new creation in Christ Jesus. They have not partaken of the poison of this pagan culture. Instead, they have drank from the river of living water. And Jesus has made them something new. See, it says there at the end of verse 4, because they are worthy. And we could all say amen to that. But we never need to lose sight of the fact that we are only worthy because he is worthy. It's all about Jesus, Revelation chapter 5, 9. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We are worthy because he is worthy. In 1715, Louis XIV of France died. His title was Louis the Great. Now, he was titled that because that's the nickname that he gave himself. Because he thought a lot about himself. His court was the most magnificent in all of Europe. He thought so much of himself that he planned a grand funeral for the occasion of his passing. Well, 1715, he passed. So it came time for his funeral. He had a casket that was made out of solid gold. He was placed in it. They put the top on it. And on that casket was one solitary candle. Well, the thousands gathered round to hear the sermon. And in hushed silence, as Bishop Jean-Baptiste Massillon approached the pulpit... He reached down to the casket and he snuffed out the candle with his finger. And what he said was, only God is great. We are only worthy because he is worthy. Verse 5, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. See, the reward for the faithful that's from Christ, it is permanent and it is certain. Romans chapter 8 says that not even death can separate us from that. Now, as you look at this, you might suppose that what this is talking about is two classes of Christians. Those that overcome and those that do not. That would be the wrong interpretation of this passage. Christians overcome. Christians conquer. Christians persevere until the end. Those that do not overcome are, in fact, lost. Say, well, what about all of those people that leave the faith? Let me just give you a few. Brad Pitt, famous actor. Did you know he was a Baptist? Now he's an unbeliever. Orlando Bloom once believed in the same God that we believe in. Now he's a Buddhist. Snoop Dogg. Well, he's kind of been everything, but he, he began with the uh, Nation of Islam, and then he was a Rostatarian. I can't even say it. He's like Bob Marley. In the middle of all of that, he proclaimed that, yes, in fact, that Jesus, he's always been fond of Jesus, and he would consider himself a born-again Christian. Ivanka Trump was once a believer who converted to Judaism. Joshua Harris, a famous evangelical preacher of a few years ago, uh, turned his back on Christianity and said, I no longer believe God. The list is endless. Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, Katy Perry, the child of a Baptist evangelical preacher. We would refer to those as nominal Christians. Doesn't make any difference. If you've signed a card, it doesn't make any difference if you walk the aisle. It doesn't make any difference if you shed tears when you walk that aisle. It doesn't make any difference if you're baptized in a tank. All of those things do not make you a Christian. Christianity is based on a relationship. When we were at Falls Creek this past summer with the students, I had uh, one session that I taught. And I asked them to take a piece of paper and I gave them about a minute to write their testimony out on that piece of paper. They wrote it. When they were through, this is what I said. If there's more information on that piece of paper about you than there is about God, that's problematic. Because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation's what he does, not what we do. All we're doing is taking a gift that he is offering. I can stand in my garage. That doesn't make me a car. You can come to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. And by the way, Jesus knows because he knows everything. Mickey Cohen was a notorious gangster. He was the muscle for Bugsy Siegel, who was himself notorious. 1949, Billy Graham was doing crusades through Los Angeles. He had the opportunity of meeting Mickey Cohen. 
And uh, through the course of conversation, supposedly, Mickey Cohen gave his life to the Lord. In 1957, Time Magazine wrote an article about that meeting and Cohen's life after that meeting. Well, his life after that meeting went like this. Supposedly, he got saved, but uh, he kept doing everything that he had been doing. Some of his Christian cohorts called him on it and said, Mickey, you can't be doing that if you're a Christian. His actual words in time were this. You never told me I had to give up my career. My friends, there are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all of that, count me out. Chuck Colson, who is an observer of culture, Christian apologist, he, he saw that article, and this is his response. Cohen echoes many of professing Christians, not, being about, not, being, not about being Christian gangsters, but being Christianized versions of whatever they already are and determined to remain so. Hmm. Well, what about all of that, Brother Tony? What about all those people that left the faith? What about those people that were Christians and now they're not Christians? Well, I would simply say they never were. 1 John 2, 9, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. But if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. Hmm. Well... In the same way, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres will be dressed in white. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. And I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. If you have a copy of the Net Bible, Net Bible is the New English Translation. It's a translation by Dallas Theological Seminary. I really like the way they interpret, uh, translate verse 6. Here's what they say. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hmm. He had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Faithful Disciples are overcomers. They persevere to the end. They conquer. Matter of fact, Paul said they're more than conquerors. How do I apply this? Well, if you still got life, verse 2 and 3, be alert. Wake up. Strengthen. Fortify what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, then what you have received and heard, keep it, repent, and then rejoice in the fact of four and five. You're robed in white. You're walking with the Lord. He's written your name down. He will acknowledge you before the angels of heaven well but what about that person here that's dead 
You're like Ichabod of old. You're living, but you have no life. You're a living corpse. You're a, you're a cadaver in Christian clothing. Rigor mortis, according to verse 2, is just about to set in. Well, lost person, I got good news for you. Jesus is not interested in resuscitating you. Jesus is interested in resurrecting you. He wants to give you new life. Deuteronomy 30, 19. Choose life so that you may live. John 10, 10. I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. Well, Mary Kidder was a young lady who was blinded when she was a teenager. Slowly over the years, she regained her sight. She was able to write 1,000 hymns. But only one of those hymns remains, as far as I know. It's a song uh, that asks the piercing question that is found there in verse 5. Lord, I care not for riches, neither silver nor gold, I would make sure of heaven, I would enter the fold. In the book of thy kingdom, with its pages so fair, tell me, Jesus, my Savior, is my name written there? Is my name written there on the page, wide and fair? In the book of God's kingdom, is my name written there? Lord, my sins, they are many, like the sands of the sea. But thy blood, O oh my Savior, is sufficient for me. For thy promise is written in bright letters that glow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Is my name written there? On the page, white and fair. In the book of God's kingdom is my name written there. Oh, that beautiful city with its mansions of light, with its glorified beings in pure garments of white, where no evil thing cometh to despoil what is fair, where the angels are watching. Yes, my name's written there. Yes, my name's written there in the page wide and fair. In the book of God's kingdom, hallelujah, my name is written there. Are you that certain today? Are you certain that your name is written there? You know what? You can be certain today. Pastor Jeremy is going to be standing right there. Brother Dana is going to come and lead us in an invitation. And if you don't have certainty, you can come and gain assurance today. Maybe you're here and your thoughts would be after this message. Yes, Jesus does know me. And everybody else thinks I'm alive, but really I'm dead. Maybe you need to come because Jesus knows. Better, better. To kneel here than to have to kneel there and declare him as Lord. Because the truth is, 
everybody's going to declare him Lord there. But if you declare him Lord here, it'll be a joyous thing there.